Before we plunge into a very unusual story, I want to turn to some red-letter words. So open your Bible, please, to the words of Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. I want to read these words, have a prayer, and then plunge into our teaching today. Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. Words of our Lord Himself. If you have a red-letter Bible, these words are bright red. Matthew chapter 7. Drop down to verse 15. I'm not going to put them on the screen. If, oh, by the way, you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible. Let me give you a page number. Pew Bible page number would be page 653. I'd like you to track this. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Jesus speaking, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Verse 17, even so. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Punchline, Jesus, verse 20, therefore by their fruits. By their fruits, you will know them. Let's pray. Oh God, trees and fruit, by their fruits, let today's teaching be clear to both our minds and our hearts as we ponder these words of Christ our Lord. We pray in His name. Amen. On November 26, 1827, in a little rural village not far from Portland, Maine, the autumn leaves already down and brown strewn upon that cold New England earth. Robert and Eunice Harmon, their family already bulging with two boys and four daughters, overnight, overnight, suddenly, See, their family expanded by two. The birth of fraternal twins. One they named Elizabeth and called Lizzie. The other they named Ellen. Robert Harmon, hard-working New New Englander farmer, trying to make ends meet, resorted to hat-making during the frigid months of those New England winters. Ten mouths to feed now. Let me tell tell you a bit about the world that these little twins, Ellen and Lizzie, grew up in. It was a formidable one in which to survive. Let me read some statistics to you. Statistics from those years indicate that children, listen to this, children under 10 often constituted close to 50% of deaths in a year. That's not counting stillborns, by the way. Reading on here, stated differently, the average age of death during 1840 when the twins were 13... Average age of death was 22.6 years, which the advertiser, which is the Portland newspaper, claimed demonstrated, quote, the superior degree of health enjoyed in Portland. Come to our city because you live longer here. 22.6. Formidable times. It was not an easy time to grow up, but isn't it fascinating? Typhoid fever, typhus, cholera, measles, scarlet fever, consumption we know as 
tuberculosis today. Isn't it fascinating? Not one of those diseases nearly killed one of the twins, but rather anger itself. One sunny afternoon, the two little girls, nine years old, with a classmate of theirs, are making their way home when an older student, 13, with threatening words, follows them. They hear her threats. Raised by a God-fearing mother to never retaliate, the twins hurriedly cross the street to the other side. And little Ellen happened to look back to gauge the distance to their tormentor when in that split second, a stone that that teenager had thrown struck Ellen in the face and she collapsed. She writes of what happened. I'll put it on the screen for you. Take a look at this. I was stunned by the blow and I fell senseless to the ground. When consciousness returned, I found myself in a merchant's store. A kind stranger offered to take me home in his carriage, but I, not realizing my weakness, told him that I preferred to walk. Those present were not aware that my injury was so serious and allowed me to go. But after walking only a few rods, I grew faint and dizzy. My twin sister and my schoolmate carried me home. I have no recollection of anything further for some time after the accident. My mother said that I, that I noticed nothing but lay in a stupor for three weeks. No one but herself thought it possible for me to recover. But for some reason, she felt that I would live. I was reduced to almost a skeleton. Weeks later, one day a neighbor lady drops by and little Ellen overhears the neighbor lady say, What a pity! I wouldn't have even recognized her. The tiny invalid calls for a glass into which to peer. She describes her reaction. Every feature of my face seemed changed. The sight was more than I could bear. I did not wish to live, but I dared not die, for I was not prepared. End quote. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, in a society like yours and mine, where physical attraction and beauty is so highly passionately emphasized, it isn't hard for you and me to imagine the heartbreaking horror of staring into a mirror with that discovery. But the most crushing blow came when her beloved father, away in Georgia in business at the time of the tragedy, returned home. She describes that moment as well. When he returned, he spoke to my brothers and sisters and inquired for me, Hey, listen, where's, where's little Ellen? Nice to see you, Lizzie, but where's your sis? Where's your twin? Oh, Papa, we haven't been able to tell you. And the story tumbles out. And Father now walks into the room where little Ellen lies. It was hard to make him believe that I was his Ellen. This cut me to the heart. Yet I tried to put on an appearance of cheerfulness when my heart ached. Has your heart ever ached over how you wished you looked? Some 50 years later, the grown-up Ellen returned in a visit to her hometown of Portland, stood on the spot where that tragedy took place. She writes, I visited the spot where I met with the accident that has made me a lifelong invalid. She never recovered. The breathing apparatus just never fully recovered from that tragic accident. I visited the spot where I met with the accident that has made me a lifelong invalid. This misfortune, which for a time seemed so bitter and was so hard to bear, has proved to be a blessing in disguise. 
The cruel blow which blighted the joys of earth was the means of turning my eyes to heaven. I might never have known Jesus. Can you believe this? I might never have known Jesus had not the sorrow that clouded my early years led me to seek comfort in Him. End quote. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, that is quite a testimony, is it not? How did she put it? I might never have known Jesus had this tragedy not been befallen me. How did Jesus put it? How did Jesus put it? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you'll know. You'll know them. In 1840, an itinerant Baptist farmer turned preacher named William Miller came into Portland and soon held his audience spellbound with the fascinating Bible prophecy teachings that seemed to suggest that Jesus was soon to return to this earth. And little 13-year-old Ellen sat on the edge of her pew drinking in every single word. She'd always had a heart for spiritual things. But theologian and historian Herbert Douglas describes what was going on in that young 13-year-old heart. Her primary motivation, however, her primary motivation was fear. Fear of not being ready when Jesus would come. Fear of failure because of her limited schooling. She never, went, she never had formal education after the third grade. She attempted to go to a, what they called a female seminary, a girl's school. So dizzy, so... So unable to focus, she had to drop out. Her fear of failure because of her limited schooling and weakened body. And fear that in some way, some of you know this fear, that in some way God had afflicted her with her horrid physical burden. One day Ellen is pouring out her fears to her mom. And her mother wisely, instantly says, Ellen... You go to our pastor, Levi Stockton. She goes to the pastor, pours out her fears. The wise man listens to that little 13-year-old and then begins to tell the story of God as reflected in the life of Jesus. Listen to what happened. Ellen's words on the screen, Faith now took possession of my heart. I felt an inexpressible love for God and had the witness of His Spirit that my sins were pardoned. My views of the Father were changed. I now looked upon Him as a kind and tender parent rather than a stern tyrant compelling men to a blind obedience. My heart went out toward Him in a deep and fervent love. My heart was so filled with love to God and the peace that passeth understanding that I love to meditate and pray. End quote. Wow. Soon young Ellen and her family joined the tens of thousands of Americans who with hopeful heart were hanging on to the Bible teachings of this William Miller as the the, uh, Millerite revival swept like fire up and down the eastern seaboard. Jesus, October 22, passed the word, 1844, Jesus is coming. Sixteen-year-old Ellen experienced a jubilant but sober countdown. And with the disappointed Millerites, she too wept. Over hopes dashed. Had their hopes been misplaced? Had God somehow forgotten them? On a December morning in 1844, 17-year-old Ellen was at a friend's home in a prayer circle with four other women. She described what happened next this way. 
while we were praying. The power of God came upon me as I had never felt it before. I seemed to be surrounded with light and to be rising higher and higher from the earth. I turned to look for the Advent people because that's what they called each other. Hope in the soon coming of Christ. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world but could not find them when a voice, when a voice said to me, look again and look a little higher. At this I raised my eyes and I saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the world. On this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. They had a bright light set behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. That's straight out of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. The ten virgins, you remember? The bridegroom's delayed. They all fall asleep. And then in the midnight, a cry goes out, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. So that they called that movement the midnight cry movement. The angel said that bright light was the midnight cry at the beginning of the path. Go on reading. This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. Now notice, if they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. Isn't that amazing? If they kept their eyes on Jesus. That was the admonition of the 17-year-old teenage girl who relayed to the four women gathered in prayer what she had just seen. Little did she know, it was the beginning of a life ministry 70 years long. A ministry woven with over 2,000 other visions and dreams. A life ministry ever focused on that first vision's admonition. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we will be safe. That point is so critical, I need you to write it down right now. Come on, reach into that worship bulletin, pull out your study guide for today. Jot it down, will you? Brand new study guide sitting there in the worship bulletin. Ushers, let's do this real quickly, please. Just hold your hand up. You want to get these quotations, hold your hand up. They're coming your way. If you didn't get a study guide up in the balcony, the same for you. Those of you sitting in overflow, the same for you. And I want to say to those of you who are watching right now, I'm delighted you're here. Join us. You need the same study guide. So let me put our website on the screen for you, and then you can go to your computer, get the identical study guide. There you see it on your screen. www.pmchurch.com TV. That's our website. You're looking for the teaching series, The Gift. This actually is part six of this series. And so today's teaching is entitled, Ellen White, What Was She Really Like? When you see that teaching title, it'll say study guide, you click on, you'll have the same quotations, you'll have the same study guide. And I hope you'll take a moment and get that study guide and fill it out with us. You see, this is a series of Bible teachings in which we are examining God's gift of prophecy from the gates of Eden all the way to the end of Revelation. We're looking at this gift of prophecy. By the way, if you've missed one of the teachings along the way, they are all building together. You can go back to that website. You can get the podcast. You listen to it at your leisure. You get the study guides. You fill them out in your own time. But today now, we're ready now in this series. We're going to move deeper now. We're going to focus today's teaching Ellen White, what, what was she really like? Four, te- four of these are coming now. Ellen White, what was she really like? Next week, Ellen White, how did it really work? Third week, Ellen White, but what about those critics? And finally, Ellen White, taste them again for the first time. Four teachings, we're moving deep now. 
For just as surely as I've had the opportunity to teach and preach around the world, people will ask me, I can just promise you this, Yo, Dwight, hey, what is, what's up with this Ellen White person that you have in your community of faith? What can you tell me about her for the next four weeks? I want to tell you. I want to answer that question for the next four weeks. Don't miss it. Share the journey. But I wish to begin today with that line straight out of her recounting of that first vision. If they kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who was just before them, leading them to the city, they were safe. As it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, that single life, that single line rather, becomes the life focus of Ellen White's 70-year life and ministry. That single line, I want to put it in the present tense, that way we won't forget it, so let's put it on the screen. This is the first line in your study guide. Fill it in, please. If we keep our eyes, all of Scripture is replete with this line. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we are safe. The ringing appeal of God in His Word. And it was the dominant note in the ensuing 70-year ministry of this 17-year-old girl, this teenager named Ellen. How did Jesus put it? Let's look at it again. Sermon on the Mount. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. All right, so here's the question. What kind of a woman was she really? I mean, come on, please. What kind of a woman was she really? This woman who at 19 fell in love and married a 25-year-old itinerant preacher named James White. And at 20, listen to this, ladies, and at 20 became the mother of the first of their four, their four boys. Wife. Mother. Homemaker. Visionary. Church leader. Public speaker. Intrepid traveler. Institutional builder. Published best-selling author. What was she really like? A friend of mine named Horace Shaw, and some of you remember him, used to be at this university. He wrote his doctoral dissertation up at Michigan State University in East Lansing. And in this dissertation, fascinating, he focused on the rhetorical analysis of Ellen White's speaking style. Since she was widely acclaimed as a public speaker. By the way, she could speak to a crowd of 20,000 people. They counted them. 20,000 people. No PA. And they could hear her as clear as a bell. So he's studying. I'm not interested in his conclusions about her rhetorical style. But um, what's fascinating is... He was able, this, this dissertation was written uh, near, at the end of the 50s. He was able to find 366 people and interview them who had actually heard her speak. And what's intriguing is there actually emerges a, a physical description of Ellen White. And I want to share that with you. I'm not in, interested in their uh, rhetorical analysis. Here's what we know from those interviews. Get this. She was a short woman, five foot two. Anybody here five foot two? Be proud of it. We can't see you, but be proud of it. We know you're here. Raise your hand. All right. She's a short woman. Five foot two. All right. Interestingly enough, it was her face that was remembered the longest by these uh, these interviewees. Here are some of the comments about her face. Features round and full. Sweetest smile broke out occasionally. Face seemed to light up. Then they spoke of her eyes. Beautiful brown eyes. And far away look. Her eyes were large and became larger if she was in earnest or excited and grew smaller when she smiled. Her hair, plain hairstyle, hair dark and always parted and combed back simply to a braided knot in the back of her neck. Her dress, 
black velvet or silk, two-piece garment, white cuffs and collar as accent, gold watch chain, silver watch in her pocket, and a silver brooch. We found an old black and white picture of her, and I want you to take a look at it. There it is. Isn't that something? What did you think she'd do? What would you think of her? You thought she was going to walk off the cover of Vogue magazine? No, she's a Victorian woman. That's what she looked like. Now, when I say Victorian woman, because you, you have to be a Victorian woman when you're living in the 1800s, I do not wish to suggest that she was some sort of prude. Let me tell you another story. On one occasion, she attended the wedding of a young preacher named Daniel Bordeaux, who for three years, some of you guys know what this is like, who for three years had been searching for a wife. All right? Finally, he found one. And James White officiated at the private home wedding. Now, because the service was late in the day, the newlyweds accepted the invitation of their host to spend their first night in the host's home, and the whites were also invited to stay as house guests. So Herbert Douglas now, the uh, theologian historian, recounts that moment. I'll put it on the screen for you. When Ellen White, who, by the way, she's 33 years old at this moment, when Ellen White went upstairs to retire... She saw a very nervous young man pacing back and forth in front of a closed bedroom door. Uh Uh-oh. She suspected a problem. Gently, she said to the young bridegroom, as the bride later quoted her husband's recital of the incident, so the bride told about it later, Daniel, inside that room is a frightened young woman in bed, petrified with fear. Now, you go into her right now, and you love her, and you comfort her, and Daniel, you treat her tenderly, and you treat her lovingly. It will do her good. And then she added, and Daniel, it will do you good too. (laughs) Ah, my. What was she like as a wife and a mother? A letter she wrote to James two days after he is on a preaching itinerary. We have the letter. I'll put a portion of the letter on the screen for you. We are all well as usual. He actually came here to Battle Creek. That's where he was headed. We are all well as usual. It takes a little time to get settled down from the excitement of your going. You may be assured we miss you. Especially do we feel the loss of your society when we gather about the fireside evenings. We feel your absence when we sit around the social board. That would be the dining room table. Then a couple weeks later, he's still on the same trip. She writes another letter. I have written you, I, I had written you quite a lengthy letter last night, but the ink was spilled upon it, making an unsightly blotch, and I will not send it. We received, oh, oh, listen to this. We received your few words last night on a postal card. So that's a postcard. He sent a postcard. She quotes everything on the postcard now in this letter. This is James White's postcard home. Battle Creek, April 11. No letters from you for two days. Signed, James White. She goes on now, having quoted his postcard back to him. This lengthy letter was written by yourself. Thank you, for we know you are living. I will write every morning. Will you do the same? She loved her boys, her four boys, just as much as young mother did. Which is why it broke her heart when little John Herbert died at three months of age. The 33-year-old mother would later describe that loss. My babe was worse. I listened to his labored breathing and I felt his pulseless wrist. I knew that he must die. That was an hour of anguish for me. I fainted 
at the funeral. My heart ached as though it would break, yet I could not share a tear. Some of you know a grief that deep that not even a tear will come. Three years later, her firstborn son, Henry, died at the age of 16. They were living in Battle Creek, not far from us here. And Henry was known, he was working in the Review and Herald publishing house. And he was known as a sweet singer. He just had this melodious voice. What happened was, in in November of that year, he caught a cold. And then the cold turned into pneumonia. And the toxic drug concoctions used in the day exacerbated his condition. And his last words to his mother were these. Mother, I shall meet you in heaven in the morning of the resurrection, for I know you will be there. He then beckoned to his brothers and parents and friends and gave them all a parting kiss, after which he pointed upward and whispered, Heaven is sweet. Those were his last words. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter. It does not matter your life calling. If you are a mother and two of your four boys die, You are cut to the quick and your heart is broken no matter what you do or don't do for a living. But how about something cheerful, Dwight? Glad you asked. (laughs) I got something cheerful. So about three or four weeks ago, you heard Dave Bender up here talking about Paul Sanchez who used to be our pastor for uh, finance and stewardship. So Paul and I are on the phone three or four weeks ago one evening and we're talking together and then the talk turned to fishing. And if you talk with Paul long, the, the... It always turns to fishing. Paul taught Kirk, my son, and me how to fish. So we're talking about fishing. And then he said, Dwight, I got a letter you have got to read. So I got a hold of the letter. He made sure I got it. It's a letter Ellen White writes to her family. She's just dropped them off in the Rockies of Colorado. It's her turn to be on a preaching itinerary. So she's leaving the family for some R&R, some vacation in the Rockies. And she writes a letter to them after she's left them. There in those uh, beautiful, rugged peaks. So I'll put the letter on the screen, portion of the letter. She's writing, Father, she's writing to James, of course. Father, our writing, they were both prolific writers. Our writing can be done in the winter. Lay it aside now. Throw off every burden and be a carefree boy again. I like that. Will and Mary, if they stay in the mountains a few weeks longer, should neither study nor write. Don't make the kids study. All right? They should be made happy for this season that they may be able to look back to this time as a season of unalloyed pleasure. Oh, and the few days you now have together improve. Roam about. Camp out. Fish. And when Paul Sanchez saw that, he said, yes. Isn't that good? I like that. Roam about. Camp out. Fish. Hunt. Go to places that you've not seen. Rest as you go. Enjoy everything. Then come back to your work fresh and vigorous. Father needs to be a boy again. Every man needs to hear that in his life. Father needs to be a boy again. Roam all around. Climb the mountain steeps. Ride horseback. Find something new each day to see and enjoy. This will be for, this will be for Father's health. Do not spend any anxious thought on me. You'll see how well I'll appear after the camp meetings are over. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, she sought to experience the buoyant and the best of life. And then she asked others to do the same. But what was the spark? What was the spark that ignited the mind and heart and soul of this woman? 
and her 70-year life ministry. I've read Ellen White for years. You know that. I have discovered that her ministry was ignited by three passions. Get into anything she wrote and before long you are headlong into these three passions. And I want you to jot them down right now. From here on out, you're writing the whole way. Let's go. Three passions. Jot them down. Passion number one that ignited her life and ministry. A passion for the Savior. Would you fill that in, please? A passion for the Savior. So I go on my CD-ROM that has the entire collection of her writings. Letters, everything. I go on my CD-ROM. What do I discover? Jot it down. I discovered that she writes of Jesus 37,038 times. My computer counted them in a split second. I discovered that she writes of Christ 69,277 times. And then I found out that she referred to the Savior 11,583 times. A passion. A passion for the Savior. In that little spiritual classic of hers, by the way, translated into more languages than anything else she ever wrote. The little book, Steps to Christ. Here are these words. You have them in your study guide. I'll put them on the screen. Ellen White writing, You are not to look to yourself, not to let the mind dwell upon self, but look to Christ. Let the mind dwell upon His love, upon the beauty, the perfection of His character. Christ in His self-denial. Christ in His humiliation at Calvary. Christ in His purity and holiness. Christ in His matchless love. This is the subject for the soul's contemplation. It is by loving Him, copying Him, depending wholly upon Him, that you are to be transformed into His likeness. She had a passion for Christ. What was that first line? From her first vision, if we will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will be safe. I read widely. I think you know that. And I can testify, I have never in all my reading encountered a more Christocentric writer than Ellen White. She had three passions. Passion number one, a passion for the Savior. Passion number two, jot it down, a passion for the Word of God. A passion for Holy Scripture. Pick up any one of her books. They will have in the back something called Scripture Index. All the verses that she quotes in that writing, in that book. She is, re- she, she is replete. She is saturated with Holy Scripture. These words, I've written in my brand new Bible right here. Andrew Study Bible. I put these words in the cover of this Bible. And you have them now in your, stu- in your study guide. I put them up on the screen. She wrote these words. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us. Just as surely as though we could hear it with our ears. Hey, listen, guys. Here's her point. If we realize this, with what awe would we open God's Word and with what earnestness would we search its precepts, the reading and contemplation of the Scriptures would be regarded as an audience with the Infinite One. End quote. Amazing. Three passions. Fire for her soul for her 70-year life ministry. Passion number one, a passion for the Savior. Passion number two, a passion for the Word of God. And finally, passion number three, a passion for the salvation of the lost. Write that down, please. A passion for the salvation of the lost. I have never read any author more passionate about saving lost people for Christ than Ellen White. 
I scribbled these words out of my Bible as well. I'll put them on the screen for you. Recently in the night season, I was awakened from sleep and given a view of the sufferings of Christ for men, His sacrifice, the mockery and derision He received at the hands of wicked men, His agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, His betrayal and crucifixion, all were vividly portrayed before me. As I have thought of that cup trembling in the hands of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, as I have realized that He might have refused to drink and left the world to perish in its sins, I have pledged that every energy of my life should be devoted to the work of winning souls to Him. Mercy. Three passions. And she was faithful to all three. Through all her life. Called by God at the age of 17. And gifted with the spiritual gift of prophecy. Ellen White lived her 70 prolific years of ministry. Ignited by these three. No wonder the fruit that ensued was so bountiful. Now your pen will never stop moving. Here we go. Look up Justin long enough to get it. She is considered today, write this down, will you please? She is considered today the third most translated author in history of all literature. Number three. Third grade education was as far as she could go. The third most translated. Keep your pen moving. She is the most translated American author, male or female. Keep your pen going. Her literary productions totaled approximately 100,000 pages, the equivalent of 25 million words. A decade ago, 128 titles were in print bearing her name, including books that are compilations. Now listen to this. Humbly now, I read these for you in your study guide. As fruit of her ministry, fruit of her ministry and leadership, God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church to become the largest Protestant educational system in the world today. And we are sitting in the heart of its major flagship institution, Andrews University. Raised up because of a humble little five-foot-two woman used mightily by God. Keep going. As a fruit of her ministry and leadership, God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church today to become the largest Protestant health system in the world today. Loma Linda University Medical School. Making headlines with science. Keep going. As a fruit of her ministry and leadership, God raised up this church to become the largest Protestant publishing enterprise in the world today. And there's one more. As a fruit of her ministry and leadership, God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church to become the most expansive Protestant missions outreach in the world today with the Seventh-day Adventist Church in more countries than any other denomination. How did Jesus put it? What did Jesus tell us? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. But I want you to catch the second half of that. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You've got to get that one. And in three weeks, I'll tell you why. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, 
You will evaluate them. You will come to conclusions about them. By their fruits, you will know them. Which is why I want to conclude today with a personal testimony. The reason I'm so deeply convicted about the divine authenticity of Ellen White's prophetic ministry is because of what the Holy Spirit has done in my own heart and life through her writings. I was a graduate student a few years ago here at Andrews University, enrolled in the theological seminary. One day, our professor in class, teaching from Psalm 139, announced to us that we ought to follow David's example and ask God to reveal to us our innate sinfulness. So one night before going to bed, I decided to give it a whirl. After all, I was a fifth-generation Adventist, fourth-generation preacher. There's nothing God could show me. (laughs) Nothing happened after I prayed it. Until three weeks later, when all hell broke loose spiritually, as I was suddenly overwhelmed with a sense of my own desperate guilt. Little sins that I had laughed off in my youth suddenly with a vengeance returned. I'm frantically trying to purge them out of my mind and my memories, but I cannot. And so I say, I'll go back to the professor who told us to do this. It was his idea in the first place. And I went back to him, but he was old school. And all he said to me in the stairwell in that building was, Go read Steps to Christ. Go read Steps to Christ. I stumbled back to our little apartment in the Maplewood Apartments here on campus. And I pulled down from my shelf my Army-Navy edition of Steps to Christ that I had been given as a boy in Japan. I pulled that book out. And I began to turn the pages. I read about God's love for man. And then I read about the sinner's need of Christ. And then I come to a chapter called Repentance. Then Confession. Then Consecration. And here's a chapter I read, Faith and Acceptance. And then another one, The Test of Discipleship. Then another chapter, Growing Up into Christ. Wow. And then the work and the life. And then a chapter, a knowledge of God. The privilege of prayer, another chapter. And finally, the last chapter. No, the next to the last chapter, what to do with doubt. And then the last chapter, rejoicing in the Lord. I read the little book through. I had to read it to get baptized in the eighth grade. I'm standing here today, ladies and gentlemen, to personally testify to you that this little classic, the title of this classic, became a self-fulfilling prophecy in my life. And I found the steps back to Christ. Right here. Right here. I'm telling you. I have tasted of the fruit. There is absolutely no equivocation in my mind that Christ anointed, blessed, in field, this woman with a prophetic ministry for such a time as this. I have found the truth. And I invite you, please, to discover the same truth for yourself. How did Jesus put it? Come on.
What did he say? Therefore, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So I'm telling you, Jesus says, therefore, by their fruits, you will know. You will know. By their fruits, you will know the truth.